Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Alfred Hitchcock. Now let's return to our story about Alfred Hitchcock. Robert Walker's Bruno Antony pushed the limits in a Hitchcock film, strangling his victim on screen and employing a nasty malevolence unlike any previous Hitchcock character. His borderline personality is underlined by a Hitchcock-designed tie embellished with clothes-clawed lobsters and a garishly over-the-top smoking jacket that screams twisted, among other things. In selecting Walker, Hitchcock made a curious casting choice relative to his former colleague David O. Selznick. Walker was deeply upset by the 1943 collapse of his marriage to Jennifer Jones. Jones's affair with Selznick was the worst-kept secret in Hollywood, and Jones left Walker while both were performing in a 1943 Selznick-produced film. Her subsequent marriage to the much more powerful producer depressed and humiliated Walker. When cast in Strangers on a Train, the actor had spent the previous year in a mental hospital battling alcoholism and a psychiatric disorder. Perhaps Hitchcock sensed that to achieve a realistic portrayal of an individual with a tenuous grip on sanity, he needed to use someone truly familiar with such mania. Walker's portrayal of an intensely destructive personality enhances the film's climax, which utilizes an amusement park merry-go-round flying out of control, graphically hurling debris into a crowd of onlookers. That Hitchcock accomplished this by blowing up a toy carousel and enlarging the result does not diminish the sense of realistically violent destruction. Neither Hitchcock or Chandler wanted the mystery writer's name associated with the finished product in any way, but the studio didn't care. Chandler got screen credit with one of the three actual writers of the screenplay, Ben Hecht associate Chenzi Ormond. Finished in December of 1950, the focus on pre-release publicity was on Hitchcock himself. A photo of the director with his hands around the throat of a statue depicting his daughter Patricia, who has a small but prominent role in the film, as well as a publicity still of the director inserting the letter L in the title, turning it into Stranglers on the Train, made their way into numerous periodicals. A box office success at the time of its release, the film received mixed critical reviews, most negativity concerning what was considered a luridly violent and unbelievable story. Today, Strangers on a Train is perceived as one of the director's most memorable efforts. Perhaps the actual fate of Robert Walker has added to the film's quirky notoriety. 
In the early evening of August 28, 1951, Walker was emotionally upset enough to alarm his housekeeper into calling his doctor to Walker's Brentwood home. The doctor eventually administered sodium amytal, a barbiturate usually employed as a sedative. Perhaps because Walker had also consumed alcohol, the drug quickly induced respiratory failure and death. Walker was only 32 years old. For his final film, My Son John, completed in 1952, after the actor's demise, director Leo McCary had to use excess footage of Walker from Strangers on a Train. Having professionally reasserted himself, Hitchcock generally relaxed and combined worldwide travel with time for both his Northern California vineyard and the 1952 marriage of his daughter to a non-industry American, eventually precipitating her show business retirement. After much indecision, he then settled on a project entitled I Confess, starring Montgomery Clift as a Catholic priest in Quebec City. The convoluted film also starred Ann Baxter and Carl Malden, and despite eight years of previous work by numerous screenwriters, the film was another step backward. Clift, severely alcoholic, only took direction from his acting coach, prompting Hitchcock to completely disengage from the actor, dealing with him only through an assistant director and silently tolerating Clift's quirky behavior. Hitchcock's lack of enthusiasm was evident, and the director subsequently described it as a merely average effort. He did not even conclude production with the usual rap party, instead inviting a few of the cast members to a private dinner at his home. Perhaps wanting to revenge what he considered self-indulgence, Hitchcock waited until well into the evening to challenge Montgomery Clift to chug a full glass of brandy. Already heavily intoxicated, Clift complied and then quickly collapsed unconscious. Carl Malden and his wife eventually retrieved the face-down actor from the floor and drove Clift home. After a bomb like I Confess, Hitchcock tended to revert back to a fail-safe project involving themes and stories that were previously successful. In this case, he got Warners to pay producer Alexander Corda 30,000 pounds for the already obtained rights to Dial M for Murder, a well-crafted thriller involving blackmail, marital betrayal, and murder. He also decided to cast a relatively inexperienced Grace Kelly in the female lead, believing her electrifying physical beauty would transcend any acting weakness. Kelly's enthusiasm for the role was also driven by her ability to negotiate a one-picture deal instead of the usual seven-year obligation. In exchange for creative freedom, Warner Brothers imposed the demand on Hitchcock that the film be shot with the studio's faddish 3D process. Audiences required to don cardboard sunglass-like devices to create the illusion of three-dimensional depth. Within days of the film's release, frantic theater management pleaded to revert back to traditional two-dimensional exhibition, filmgoers either passing on the film or irritated by the cumbersome optical device. Dial M for Murder literally ended the 3D movie theater experiment, and most audiences never saw the original print. The film's pivotal moment occurs when Grace Kelly's character is almost strangled by an intruder blackmailed into the murder attempt by Kelly's husband. She survives by stabbing her assailant with a scissor retrieved at the last moment. The actress later commented that the entire scene took a week to film, 
the director prolonging the process and eventually constructing a very sexually suggestive and elongated act of violence. Typically, the director was already discussing his next film, The Eventual Rear Window, to the extent that Grace Kelly passed on the lead in On the Waterfront to sign on with Hitchcock again. Hitchcock already owned the rights to a Cornell Woolrich story, It Had to Be Murder. He hired the experienced radio writer John Michael Hayes to compose a treatment that was so appealing that the director then commissioned him to write a screenplay. Hayes respected Hitchcock's creative process, but was put off by the man's miserly and manipulative treatment. Hitch's only compliment about the script was the offhand comment that Alma likes it, as generous as the director ever got. He also kept dangling a bonus after acknowledging that Hayes' salary was certainly a bargain, but first indicated that would have to wait until Hitchcock got to see the script on film. Then the bonus was put off until a verdict from the critics, and then it all depended on how the public responded. Finally, Hayes realized he wouldn't get the bonus, and he never did. Hitchcock had fulfilled his commitment to Warner Brothers, and Rear Window was his first effort under a deal negotiated with Paramount that not only allowed him to produce, but to also eventually own the five films created for the studio. Although set in the courtyard of a Greenwich Village apartment house, the film was shot entirely on a Hollywood soundstage with a specially constructed set that could even simulate the difference between night and day the largest facility ever constructed on the Paramount lot. Jimmy Stewart symbolizes Hitchcock, spying on his neighbors with a long-range telephoto lens, clearly physically attracted to Grace Kelly, but keeping her at an emotional arm's length, wondering out loud if she could ever tolerate the demanding lifestyle of Stewart's fearless, globetrotting photographer. And Stewart's initially disturbing voyeurism ultimately delivers heroic results, Hitchcock's longtime costume collaborator Edith Head pulled out all of the stops, even fitting the actress in a racy nightgown that might underline the only flaw in the film. Stewart's character's ambivalence concerning such a remarkably beautiful and charming woman, utterly inconceivable. Hitchcock began filming Rear Window in November 1953, only weeks after completing Dial M for Murder. His enthusiasm combined with his established crew of technical associates handling wardrobe, script supervision, music soundtrack, sound technicians, and a stage set so large Hitchcock frequently needed a walkie-talkie to communicate with his cast produced a remarkable effort. Although this was a complex project, it went as smoothly as any Hitchcock production. Hitch even enjoying the practical joke of having Raymond Burr, the film's villain, made up to look exactly like David O. Selznick. Box office was sensational, and the critical response transcended the usual Hitchcock accolades. Next, it was to catch a thief, Hitchcock having found his perfect muse, Grace Kelly, and uniting her memorably with Cary Grant again in a script that he worked closely on with Hayes and filming on location in the French Riviera, the director had a positive experience reflected in the finished product. Although neither knew it at the time, this was to be Grace Kelly's last effort with the director. The trouble with Harry followed, most notable for the appearance of Shirley MacLaine in her first major screen role. A sardonic but ordinary and uncharacteristic comedy, it seems as if Hitchcock was taking a production breather before continuing to create additional outstanding films. However, 
there was to be a very lucrative distraction before the next film was assembled. His former agent, Lou Wasserman, now the president of MCA, a major producer of material for television, pitched him on the idea of a 30-minute mystery television program. Hitchcock was reluctant until he was offered $129,000 an episode and the opportunity to have virtually nothing to do with the program's actual product. He did provide a usually sarcastic and comedic introduction and conclusion, but of the 361 episodes presented during the 10-year run of the program from 1955 to 1965, Hitchcock only directed 17 episodes. Other directors, ranging from Paul Onreed, Arthur Hiller, and even Robert Altman, were actually behind the camera. No matter, the show with its symbolic theme, Funeral March of a Marionette, and cartoon silhouette drawn by Hitchcock himself, was extremely popular in both the U.S. and Europe. Popular interest then precipitated a mystery magazine and even book collections of short stories, all ghostwritten and connected to Hitchcock in purchased name only. In 1955, with Grace Kelly intent on bigger things, Hitchcock was forced to find another actress for his next film, a remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, a project that the director had envisioned for many years. Characteristically, possibly because he would not be the center of attention, Hitchcock eventually turned down an invitation to one of the most high-profile events of the 20th century, the marriage of Grace Kelly to Prince Renier of Monaco. Instead, Hitch focused on his next project, a combo of international intrigue, politics, and domestic drama. The film meanders for close to two hours, but has enough suspense, scenic visuals, and plot twists to establish it as theatrically successful. Considered a cut below some of the other Paramount efforts, the film still holds up today as memorable, especially the Academy Award-winning song, Que Sera Sera, written especially for the film and presented by Doris Day. Although Day's performance is riveting and emotionally powerful, a scene in which Jimmy Stewart feels she needs to be sedated as she is becoming hysterically unhinged is the type of negatively condescending treatment of women that was becoming more pronounced in Hitchcock's films. No matter, the film became one of the most financially successful of 1956. After the low-key black-and-white drama, The Wrong Man, Hitchcock began development on a project destined to be much more monumental, based on a French novel, D'Entre les Mortes. Having parted ways with John Michael Hayes, acrimoniously over money and a perceived lack of gratitude on the writer's part, Hitchcock invited several individuals to take a crack at a screenplay for what eventually became Vertigo. He also became quite ill from gallbladder disease, requiring two separate operations and two months of recuperation. Vera Miles, who initially showed enough promise to be signed to a three-picture Hitchcock contract, was slated to star on the lead female role. But as the director subsequently stated, we'd have spent a heap of dollars on it, and she had the bad taste to get pregnant. Kim Novak was subsequently hired, a fortuitous change of direction that gave the role the Hollywood glamour and presence it deserved. Vertigo is the story of a man's psychological obsession with both women and a specific woman. Hitchcock's dedication was intense from the very start, even down to constructing an exact movie set duplicate of a hotel room right down to the ashtrays. 
The director also employed trick shots, spiral, and other special effects that were both unprecedented for him and a novelty for audiences. The city of San Francisco also plays a prominent role, adding a unique backdrop that only intensifies the film's dreamlike quality and nightmarish ending. At the time of its release, the film generated lukewarm and even hostile reviews, considered weird, plodding, and too unbelievable. The much older Stewart also seems a mismatch for Novak in her early 20s. The film's reputation has greatly improved over the years, now considered not only one of Hitchcock's best, but on most lists of the greatest films ever made. Real life again intruded in 1958. Hitchcock's wife Alma coming down with cancer, which stalled the director's creative process. He spent most of his time in Los Angeles, visiting his wife during her hospitalization and filming appearances for his television show. These efforts consisted mostly of filming the intros and outros, with Hitchcock placed in some absurd pose tied to a railroad track or dressed up as an infant in diapers. In his inimitable voice, the director would greet his audience with a good evening and then deliver a brief gag, even the sketch written by a comedy writer hired specifically to write these bits. While tied to the tracks, Hitchcock simply says, fellow tourists, I think this proves that in some ways the airplane can never replace the train. During the Christmas season, Hitchcock, filmed while clearly bricking up Santa Claus in the fireplace, commented, He's not a bad chap, but his taste in ties is terrible. These efforts placed Alfred Hitchcock Presents consistently among the top-rated television programs of the late 50s. When his wife's health distraction abated, Hitchcock began brainstorming his next film, which literally started as an idea. Having always wanted to dramatize a plot utilizing Mount Rushmore, Hitchcock decided he needed a proven, first-rate screenwriting talent to develop a story incorporating this concept. He settled on Ernest Lehman, an eventual six-time Academy Award nominee and the author of Sabrina, The Sweet Smell of Success, West Side Story, and The Sound of Music. While Hitchcock focused on his wife's recovery, Lehman developed a story devoted to the central plot of an innocent man who is on the run, mistaken for a secret agent. In one of the most memorable scenes ever produced by Hitchcock, a crop duster attempts to exterminate Cary Grant after he is lured to a cornfield, allegedly in Indiana, but actually filmed in Wasco, near Bakersfield, California. Only Hitchcock could get away with such a preposterous and inexplicable plot twist, but this segment does make for some of the most enjoyable footage in Hollywood history. The U.S. government was not keen on actors skittering all over a national monument, disrespecting American presidents, so the director, working closely with set designer Robert Boyle, came up with studio recreations. With matte paintings and set designs, Boyle depicted both the Mount Rushmore exteriors and the modernistic home occupied by James Mason. Boyle, the type of unsung talent that Hitchcock identified and employed throughout the director's career, previously provided the sets for the Statue of Liberty in Saboteur, and eventually completed such tasks as constructing out of styrofoam and fiberglass the submarine used in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. After such downers as The Wrong Man and Vertigo, North by Northwest, with its imaginative settings, taut suspense, 
the stunning Eva Marie Saint and comedic presence of Cary Grant was enthusiastically greeted by audiences and critics alike. Today, it remains quite popular as one of the quintessential Hitchcock films. Having established several cinema trends himself, Hitchcock also keenly followed other trends within the film industry. The 50s, which featured cheaply made science fiction monster movies, blobs that threatened civilization and attacks from outer space, were more graphically frightening and ramped up cinema violence and destruction. Always eager to explore new directions and different production styles, Hitchcock decided to adapt a novel about a motel owner and serial murderer. It would be shot in black and white to mimic the low-budget horror films routinely produced during the time period, and for the first time in Hitchcock's career, it featured graphic violence instead of leaving such things to the viewer's imagination. The director utilized his television show production facilities and crew, low-ball talent like Janet Leigh and Anthony Perkins, and even brought in the exiled Vera Miles, as the actress was already collecting a salary on her long-term contract. A great deal of time was spent on the shower scene to give the director voluminous material for the final edit. The sound of stabbing simulated by plunging a knife into a melon Life symbolically ebbing away as chocolate syrup mimicking blood circled a shower drain, and high-pitched violin notes broke new ground for both Hitchcock and American audiences, a clever publicity gambit in which viewers were told that they would not be admitted once the film started only hyped the anticipation for a film that took a great deal of heat as exploitative schlock. The public didn't care, the film breaking international box office records and personally earning Hitchcock $15 million, the current equivalent of over $130 million today. Alfred Hitchcock was now not only the most famous director in the world, he was also the wealthiest. An adroit businessman, Hitchcock's next negotiation involved the sale of the ownership of Psycho and Alfred Hitchcock Presents to MCA, Universal's parent company, in exchange for 150,000 shares of MCA stock. The agreement was both financially astute, but also revealing in terms of Hitchcock's perpetual need for complete control in all aspects of his life, the deal making him the third largest holder of company stock and affording a great deal of corporate leverage in the event of any dispute, creative or otherwise. Despite this monumental success, Hitchcock was struck by the irony that of all of his films, what he referred to as this bloody piece of crap, Psycho, created the biggest popular impression. His next project was several years in the making, resulting from a clipping concerning an attack of birds on a La Jolla chimney that resulted in great damage, followed by a coincidence of a similar incident in Hitchcock's own backyard of Santa Cruz. He already owned the rights to The Birds, a de Maurier short story. Now all he needed was a fleshing out of the plot. Having worn out Ernest Lehman, Hitchcock hired Evan Hunter, a contributor to his mystery magazine and television series, and subsequently more prominent as mystery writer Ed McBain. The director's major goal, as the author eventually recalled, was to scare the hell out of the audience. Hitchcock's search for a lead actress for this project was unlike any other in his filmmaking career. 
spotting an attractive actress on a television commercial, the director had his own agents locate the woman and bring her to MCA executive offices for an extensive set of interviews. The woman was 31-year-old Tippi Hedren, a successful magazine advertising model without any film acting experience of any kind. After Hedron signed a seven-year personal services contract, which was actually a cut in pay, the model was introduced to Hitchcock himself. Invited to lunch at Chasen's, accompanied by MCA chairman Lou Wasserman and Alma Hitchcock, Tippi Hedron was completely stunned when the director offered her a starring role in his next film, The Birds. Hedron had no ambition to even act, much less star in motion pictures. Many of Hitchcock's collaborators believed that the actual filming process bored the director, that he was more interested in the technical challenges of recreating his inner imagination. The Birds was a formidable undertaking, involving 1,500 separate shots, three times what the director normally utilized. Mechanical birds, as well as actual live gulls and crows, were used during filming. The film supposedly takes place in the northern California town of Bodega Bay, but the town, as it appeared in the film, was mostly a Hollywood set. Hitchcock also placed an increasingly intense focus on Tippi Hedren, coaching her every movement down to the turn of her head. For the film's finale, Hedren was placed in a small room where prop men threw live birds at her, filming a scene that Hitchcock dragged out until the actress was literally cut on the eyelid by a bird that was as upset as she was. The actress collapsed, and filming was essentially concluded. Under the circumstances, Hedron's performance was remarkable, and she received praise for her portrayal of a San Francisco socialite interested in pursuing overly confident Rod Taylor, in spite of Taylor's controlling mother. Despite the similar behavior of Hitchcock and the grueling experience during filming of The Birds, Hedron readily agreed to star in Marnie, Hitchcock's next project. Divorced with a young daughter and under a seven-year contract that the director made clear that he would never consider a loan-out, she had few options. If Hitchcock was professionally abusive during The Birds, he crossed the line during Marnie. Tippi Hedren was already adept at sidestepping the director's subtle attempts at physical endearment, but towards the end of filming, he overtly propositioned her in her trailer, and when she angrily made it clear she would never comply, he then threatened her and her career. Hedren didn't budge, and while the two continued filming, they never spoke directly again, Hitchcock communicating through assistant directors. He lost interest in the film, which at the time of its release was reviewed as sloppy and unfocused and a definite disappointment. MCA quietly dissolved Hedron's contract two years later when she refused a television assignment. Throughout his career, after a poorly received or misunderstood film, Hitchcock always rebounded to even greater artistic and commercial heights, but this time he was unable to recapture either the remarkable creativity of the 50s or the commercial dominance of the early 60s. In 10 years, he would complete only four more films, Torn Curtain, Topaz, Frenzy, and Family Plot. With competition from James Bond blockbusters, a new generation of stars, and high-quality foreign films, suddenly the bar was much higher for a 66-year-old trying to stay current in the trendiest industry on the planet. 
and Hitchcock seemed to lose interest, his final films thrust upon him by a studio which had too large of an investment in him to let him just sit in his bungalow. The harsh reality of old age was starting to have an effect. During the filming of Frenzy in London, Alma had a serious stroke. Luckily, the Hitchcocks were staying at Claridge's and were accompanied by the couple's personal physician. Paralyzed on her left side and unstable on her feet, she refused to enter a hospital, choosing instead to be treated daily by the doctor at her hotel. She eventually recovered and did not lose her sense of humor. If I'm going to have a stroke, I can't imagine a better place to have it. Her husband's lifestyle was also a concern. Besides lifelong obesity and a voracious appetite, Hitchcock's alcohol consumption now included daytime, on-set consumption of vodka and orange juice from a flask. Family Plot, Hitchcock's final film, was released in 1976. For the next four years, Hitchcock made the journey every workday morning to his studio office on the Universal lot. In 1978, his wife suffered another stroke, this one serious enough to confine her permanently to Bellagio Road. Even in his heyday, the Hitchcocks were never in particular social demand. His condescension about whatever food or wine being served and his recounting of the same jokes or stories marked him as both boring and boorish. Now his career essentially over, friendless after so many years of burning bridges or alienating associates, he spent most of his time alone. He did have a project in mind entitled The Short Night, an espionage thriller set in England, and he brought in a succession of writers to work on a treatment and even a script. But this was more to maintain appearances and continue the charade that he was still viable in Hollywood. To one of his final co-writers, he even admitted that he knew the film would never be made. Two months after his last public appearance in March of 1979 to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Film Institute, a televised event attended by many prominent industry members, including Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant, Hitchcock announced that he was shutting down his office on the Universal lot. Although his longtime assistants must have known this day was approaching, after almost a quarter century of employment, he gave them no notice and no financial consideration, despite previous assurances. Hitchcock, by now an American citizen, did receive a final public tribute in late 1979 when he was knighted, but was so feeble that the ceremony bestowing the honor occurred on the universal lot, presented not by the Queen, but by the British Consul General. Alfred Hitchcock died of renal failure on April 29, 1980, at the age of 80. Although he completely withdrew in his last months, refusing visits from most of his acquaintances and yelling and insulting those who were able to gain entrance at Bellagio Road, Hitchcock's funeral at the Catholic Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills was standing room only, with Lou Wasserman delivering the eulogy. Hitchcock's ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. When his wife died two years later, her cremated remains were deposited in the same location. But even in death, Alfred Hitchcock still cast a formidable shadow over the landscape of Hollywood. Several of his most notable films had completely disappeared from distribution, and with the director's death, there was a renewed fascination as to what exactly was behind this baffling development. Rear Window, Vertigo, and The Man Who Knew Too Much were three of the five films that the public was prevented from seeing, in some cases for over two decades. 
The ownership of all five films, including The Trouble with Harry and Rope, reverted to Hitchcock after eight years as a result of his deal with Paramount, a deal in which the studio never foresaw the emergence of the digital marketplace or even the enthusiastic following the director enjoyed in perpetuity. Through his notoriously hard-boiled agent, Herman Citron, Hitchcock refused any sale to television and turned down some of the most prestigious film organizations in the world who merely wanted to screen these films as a retrospective tribute to the director himself. Even Jimmy Stewart was rebuffed when he asked to merely show a clip of Vertigo at his own 1982 Berlin Film Festival tribute. Neither Hitchcock or his entourage ever commented on their reasoning behind this prohibition, but predictably this withdrawal from circulation proved to be a shrewd tactic. Universal bought worldwide distribution rights for the five films for $6 million, although the copyright was retained by the Hitchcock estate. When Rear Window, the first of the five long-lost Hitchcock gems, was re-released in 1983, it did better than most contemporary films. After this coda of posthumous success, other sensationally lurid aspects of Hitchcock's life were revealed publicly. In the 1983 blockbuster biography, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, Tippi Hedren specifically detailed the Svengali-esque behavior of the director from the very beginning of their relationship, culminating with his demand that she be sexually available to him whenever he demanded. Formerly a beloved, quirky, popular culture icon, Hitchcock's image was tarnished permanently as he suddenly was perceived as a creepy, perverted, pathetic old man. Although many actresses who had worked with him over the years, including Eva Marie Saint, Doris Day, and Kim Novak, contradicted Hedron, the damage was done. Eventually, with the passage of time, and Hedred's continually contradictory accounts, the sensation subsided, and Hitchcock's legacy became his remarkable output of some of the finest films ever made. Today, the celebrity, persona, and outrageous comments meant to shock have mostly faded away, the director's actual life no longer as important as his amazing body of work. Undoubtedly, for Alfred Hitchcock, that was the perfect ending. Thank you for listening to part two about Alfred Hitchcock. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spoto and Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light by Patrick McGilligan. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com especially with this episode, numerous photos of all of the actors and actresses and many scenes from Hitchcock's films. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.
Thank you.